0: coming through the storm Oh no, you never let go in every high and every low Oh no, you never let go Lord, you never let go of me Lord, that is exactly what we need to know No matter what difficulty, problem, trial, separation, disaster We may be presently going through. We are not alone. For you are with us and you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, I pray now as we turn to your holy word. We come to one of the great texts of the scripture. Would your Holy Spirit do a deep heart work in all of us? May we truly encounter you and your purpose for our life in these minutes that we share together. And we come, Lord, expectantly, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 14. This week, uh, Karina made one of her routine trips to the library, and as per usual, she shows up with a bunch of books. And you know, every once in a while, I just kind of look and see, okay, what, what are we reading here? And there's books for the kids, and Karina's always researching something. And, and I noticed that one of the books that she had was there's a book that I'd, I'd wanted to read. I'd actually been hearing about it. Um, it's uh, a book written by Bert Mary Beth Chapman. It's called Choosing to See. Now, I've always been a big fan of Stephen Curtis Chapman. And this book was written by her wife. I've got a lot of his CDs. I've seen him in concert at various times. And, and, I, and I've heard about this book, and I thought, well, man, this is going to be my golden opportunity. I think, I'll, I think I'll read it. And so I did. I, I read that book this week. And, you know, when we encounter, like, celebrity couples, or people that have lots of resources. Or it just seems like everything just kind of goes their way. We imagine that they live in perfect little pristine lives. Everything just kind of goes their way. If they need something done, they can hire it to be done. And and that they're kind of exempt from trials. And if you have that mindset, you might want to even read this book, Choosing to See, because it gives you an inside look into reality. This book, I found to be just, it was heart-wrenching honest, And at the same time, there was just absolute grace that's running through it. She she didn't hold anything back. She didn't give this mirage that everything's great, all things are perfect. My husband sings songs that the world sings and worship to God and life is peachy keen. No. She lets you in to like her past. She talked about her, her teenage years and how painful they are and some mistakes that she made and just how it just destroyed her. And then Uh, She goes into some pretty great detail talking about her long-term struggle with clinical depression, not like having a bad day every once in a while, but just this deep-seated sadness, a clinical depression that she had been diagnosed, that she lives with even to this day. And then an event that really kind of just shook the world of anybody that follows them and knows about Stephen Curtis Chapman's music is that they had... We're involved in adoption. They adopted adopted three different children. And their five-year-old girl comes running around the house to the driveway as her son, her older son, is driving up with an SUV. Doesn't see the little girl. Hits her. And she dies right there on the driveway of their family home. And the book actually goes and spends a lot of detail of what this looked like and just walking through the pain of that storm in their life. She shares all these different writings and journal entries of what this looks like, even to this present day. You know, you come to something like that and you're going, how in the world do you go through storms like that? Several times I had to put the book down because it was just too heart-wrenching. How do you go through storms like that where life is just literally ripped apart in front of your very eyes? Your heart is torn in two. And we all face storms. Every single row in this auditorium is filled with people that go through heartbreak. Dreams have been crushed. You've got financial issues, relationship breakdown, kids that have gone astray, facing separation, Divorce, lost your job. I mean, and then we've got even just our own walks with God. And are they just a picture of just perfection? No problems? No, it's it crushes us. I mean, there's people here that they've denied they know Christ because it wasn't convenient. Uh, We haven't forgiven people that we were supposed to forgive. And God made that real clear to us. Spelled it out in a word. We heard a couple sermons on it. And we were like, nah. We know spiritual failure. We know failure in the physical world. Our bodies are breaking down. And how in the world do we go through these kind of storms of life? And we ask, why? Why are we going through this? And we ask, how are we going to make it through this one? And what is God teaching us about himself and ourselves in these storms. And that is why Matthew 14 beginning in verse 22, that's why this passage of scripture is so vital. It helps us make sense of the storms of life. And if you don't have a real good handle and a working knowledge of Matthew 14 verse 22 through 36, then life seems like a scattered jigsaw puzzle with a lot of the pieces missing. This text gives us insight, insight into the storms. Now, one of the great essential lessons of the training of the twelve and the training of all of Christ's disciples is found in this passage. We can't afford to miss it. And it follows really on the tail of another one of the great lessons that Jesus taught his men. Remember in the feeding of the 5,000, we looked at it last time? They learned that Jesus could provide all they need to minister to the masses. That he could feed five thousand men, not even counting the women and the children. He has the power to do it. You just keep coming to him. He gives you the resources you need to meet the need of the moment. It is on the tails of this amazing miracle that was done in front of estimated ten to fifteen thousand people. The disciples had first hand knowledge. In verse twenty two, it says, Immediately. You see the sense of urgency? He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. John, in his record of this miracle, mind you, the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 is recorded in all four gospels, tells us exactly why Jesus immediately sent his men away. Because the people were intending to set Jesus up as their king right now. They wanted to go and make him a king. Look at this. He is doing a miracle that only God could do. If he can feed us, why, he can rule. We'll take this guy as our king because, frankly, we need meals. We are listening to what he has to say. We'll set up us as a king. Well, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to be Burger King, all right? He is the king of kings. And he has come to redeem a lost humanity to draw people unto himself. There is a cross to go to where he will actually pay the penalty for the sins of all of his people. And furthermore, he has to train his men, his people to carry on his ministry so that while when he is gone, his work is going to continue through this earth on this earth. And that is why this text is so important, because he's going to teach them what will that look like? You see, I'd imagine the disciples didn't want to go away. I mean, think about how cool that was. You're showing up and you're feeding all these people. They're saying thank you. And you're like, yep, yeah, no problem, man. You and, you're, and it was this great scene. And they heard, let's make Jesus king. Let's do it right now. And they're like, we're going to have top positions. This is great. Uh, he is a king and we'll, we'll reign with him. We're going to, we're sitting pretty. Jesus sees it. He probably sees it in their eyes. He knows that they're thinking. He immediately says, boys in the boat, and I want you to go to the other side. Get as far away from here as possible. And so he sends them away and he sends them to the other side. And then after that, he's got this crowd. Can't you imagine the masses? And there, there's just going to be this rush, this push to turn him into their king on their terms, not his. And Jesus sends them away. And then in verse 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. See, Jesus understands the heart of spiritual ministry. That is why he's communing with his father. The work, the greatest work of the ministry isn't so much the activity as it is the hidden work of prayer communing with the Father. And so you see Jesus, and he goes to spend time with his Father to talk about the lessons that were just taught in the feeding of the 5,000, to pray for the people that they'd not get the wrong idea that he just came to feed them, to do miracles in their midst, but that indeed he's the Messiah to draw all men unto himself. And he's praying for his men that they will learn the lessons of what it means to follow him completely. And there is a great lesson they're going to need to learn that is going to be covered in these next few verses. It is critical that they learn it and we learn it. And so he prays. Now, Jesus directs them to get in the boat and go to the other side. That idea of going to the other side, we find from Mark's gospel, he sent them to Bethsaida. He wants them to go into enemy territory. And that when the Bible talks about going to the other side, crossing seas, it's going to a place where you generally don't belong. This isn't home turf. And he goes and he prays for them. They're not sinning because they're leaving Jesus on the shore and they're getting in the boat and going. He told them, this is what I want you to do. Does Jesus frequently ask us to do things that we don't want to do? Yeah. A lot of the time. He wants us to learn what it means to follow him. He is directing their ministry. And you know what he's going to do in these upcoming verses? He is going to strengthen and deepen their life and their faith in him. Now, let me ask you. What are Peter, James, John, Andrew, what do they do for a living? You know what their occupation was? What's their career? Anybody know? That's all right. I heard it. They're fishermen. All right. And they're good at it. I mean, they've made a living. They support their families. Some of these guys had a business. They had hired servants. They're fishermen. They know all about boats and sails and the sea and winds and waves. Right. It is their strength. And, you know, this is what God has to do. God has to break them in their strength so that he will be able to accomplish his purposes in their life. You see, Jesus is going to teach them to be fishers of men. And they have to be completely broken. And that is what God has to do. He has to break us in our strength. We're going to concede our weaknesses, right? Like, for instance, if I said, hey, you know, we got communion coming up in a few minutes. Could you sing a special song for all the folks in church today? You know, uh, right? Some of you would start panicking. Or if I said, could you leave the junior hires in their camp out next weekend? Or speak at a college retreat? You'd like, oh, uh, no. I, you'd start falling on your knees. You'd start praying because you're like, whoa, no, I, I, that would, that's my weakness. But if you were asked to do something like, you know, I do that all the time, I can handle it. That's the problem. The problem with really gifted people is that they trust their gift rather than their God. I can make money. I can do this. I can run this business. I can do this ministry. I can lead the junior high camp. No problem. God wants us to to learn to live life completely dependent upon him, where his strength will flow through us and we'll not trust our gift. We will trust our God. And so they're going to listen and they're going to learn. Now, the other thing is that they just came off a great success. I mean, think about it. They were there. Feeding of the 5,000, man, they, were, they had front row seats and they were passing out the food. You know, when we have a great success in life, whether it be your ministry at work or something really goes cool with your kids or you have a capacity to really love people or wherever, what happens is it has a way to go to our head. And instead of fostering dependency and delight upon God, our flesh likes to twist it into self-confidence and pride. Self-assurance. We did it. it's all about us and so they're coming right off of this and so jesus is going to teach them what ministry will be like when he is no longer physically present you know what jesus is doing right now he's praying he is making intercession for his men they do not know what is just about to come upon them now if you knew that jesus was just like right in the other room praying for you wouldn't that change everything and that is exactly what he's doing he is training his men he's going to train them what life will look like when he is going to ascend to the father and this is it don't miss this you might want to write this down this is how it works he directs through his word and he prays for his people Remember like what uh, he told Simon? He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has granted uh, asked for permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And he says, you know what? That your faith may not fail. And after you have turned, meaning even after you fail, one, once you've turned again, once you've repented, strengthen your brothers. I'm praying for you. You know what Jesus is doing right now? Do you know? He's he's been doing it even before you were awake. This is a great passage, Hebrews 7.25. It gives real peace to your soul. It says in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him for this reason, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is praying for you to get it, to learn to walk by faith. And so he's praying. He is praying for his men, and he's praying that they will be better men as a result of what is just about ready to happen. Now, they're out in the boat. I'd imagine Jesus, you know, they're like, well, somehow Jesus is going to get here. He must be walking. We're going in this. But there's something that happens while they're a little little rowboat, and they're making their way. you got all the 12 guys. they got their 12 baskets of food, all the other stuff that they're taking. Look at verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from land and battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. It wasn't smooth sailing like they probably thought. All of a sudden, another storm. Remember, they had been in a significant storm earlier where they actually thought they were going to lose their lives. And remember, they, even, they had to wake Jesus up. Jesus wasn't too concerned about it. I mean, when you're the creator, the storm is not really a threat. They thought they were going to lose their lives, and they woke him up, and they said, Master, we're perishing, and they're freaking out. and like, help us, you're going to die right here. Remember that? Well, now they got another storm, and they're just missing one key guy, Jesus. He is not in the boat, and he's not asleep back there. All of a sudden, they're like, whoa, another storm, and it's blowing them far off course. He told them to go to the other side, send them into Beth- to Bethsaida. They're getting blown and whipped around. Now, the Sea of Galilee, the sea actually like sits like in a bowl of mountains. And these storms can come up suddenly, and they are rough. These fishermen knew that the best thing to do is to get far away from those storms and get back on shore. Well, now they're getting kicked around in the Sea of Galilee. They're getting concerned. They are trying to row. They're trying to get where Jesus told them to go. And let me ask you, who sent them into the storm anyway? Who did it? Jesus said, I want you to go to the other side. He didn't say, oh, and by the way. You want, might want to strap on the life vest because you're going to run to a pretty serious storm. You just said, no, I want you to go to the other side. You know, the storms that you and I face in our life, they come up unexpectedly. We didn't know that this was going to happen. We just followed what Jesus said, told us to do. And now all of a sudden we're in the midst of this huge storm. They're getting battered. They're just beat around by these waves. Now, there's a reason why God sends storms in our life. Sometimes God sends a storm in our life for correction, i.e., Jonah. Remember that? God told him explicitly, "This is what I wanted you to do." Jonah, like, no, I ain't doing that. I think I'll go take a little vacation in Spain. Uh, He goes the opposite direction. God says, "Got a little life lesson here for you, Jonah," and He sends a storm. And the storm was just kind of the beginning of his problems because then he had, you know, kind of the gastric juice overhaul, you know, or I'm going to permanently tattoo you. You're going to look like blotched, bleached out skin for the rest of your life. But I'm going to have to teach you some hard lessons because sometimes if you absolutely disobey God, you have put him on the shelf, you know explicitly what he's called you to do, and you're going to do the stiff arm to God, he has a way of getting your attention and bringing you to a point where you will listen. And some of us have gone through these storms where it's no laughing matter. But there's other reasons why God puts us in storms. And that is for our perfection, our maturity, our growth, our development. It has nothing to do with sin. It has everything to do with our sanctification, our growth, our maturity. It is not easy. It's painful. And yet he intends for us to learn how to live by faith. Faith in Christ. Somewhere along the line, Christians got the idea that I'm tr- if I trust in Jesus, I've got a I will never face a storm in life card. We, and we're shocked when we face storms. But didn't Jesus say, hey, listen, in the world you're going to have what? Tribulation. You're going to have trials, disappointments, hardships. Things are going to come out of the nowhere. Can, can storms just hit you by surprise? Yeah, check with the people in Lubbock. All of a sudden, what's this huge cloud of dust? But can storms, family, personal life? I mean, just this morning, and talking with some different people, they told me about different storms they have going on in their life. Their kids, their family, neighbors. I'm like, whoa. They just come out of nowhere. You weren't planning on it. You weren't expecting it. Jesus is seeking to accomplish a work. And these remaining verses, he's going to teach us what that is. Well, they're a long way from land. This storm hits unexpectedly. And, you know, sometimes we try to find out what's causing the storm. You know, like, well, I stopped seeing that person. Or, okay, I've confessed that sin and I gave it up. Or I'm not doing that anymore. Or the Lord forgave me. Why am I in the storm? Maybe you're in the storm. The trials that James said are going to come for him to bring you to a greater depth of maturity and love and dependence upon Christ himself. Well, look at this, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, the Roman military divided the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. They had four watches. They did it in three hour blocks. Okay. so the fourth watch, these boys have been battered around since three to six in the morning. OK, they've been and, and they're and they've been all night at this. They're just wiped out, tired. I mean, you can see them straining the oars. They have nothing left. It's in the fourth watch between three and six. That he. Came to them. Did you see that? And he is walking. On the sea. Now, this is profound. The Bible says there's only one who treads upon the sea. You read about in Job or Isaiah or Psalm 77. You know who it is? God alone treads and walks upon the sea. Jesus is God. Hence, he is doing what God does. Do people walk on water? No. But can God? He can. And he is walking on the sea. Well, this this is overwhelming. He's walking on the sea, verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They literally came unglued. I mean, they were encountering things they had no explanation for, and they said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. This idea of a ghost, an apparition, it it was it was actually a word that they would refer to something like a deception. They they thought they were being deceived by some sort of evil spirit that was posing himself like Jesus. They were being deceived. There was this deception. This is this ghost. Because whatever that is, walking on the water sure looks a lot like Jesus. But we left him on the land, and we're in this storm, and they just came unglued. What what is going on? We're in this storm. Are we going to die? Are we going to face some sort of huge eternal punishment? What what is taking place here? And so they see this. Individual walking on the sea. They call out and cry out. It's a ghost. They're crying out in fear. And here's verse 27. You might want to underline it. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. Ego and me. It is I. Do not be afraid. What he, he says literally is, I am They remind you of anything. Remember in Exodus chapter three, when God reveals himself and Moses says, well, who do I say that sent me? God actually discloses his name, who he is. He says, I am. I am the self-existent one. I have no beginning. I am the God of eternity. I am the God of creation. I am. Jesus says the exact same words. He says, take courage. I am. I am right here. You don't have to come unraveled. You don't have to come unglued. I know you're in this storm. I am. I am with you. I am here. I am even in the midst of your storm and your struggle. That is all you need to know. I am. Now, does Jesus come to us in the midst of our storms? Our struggles? He does, but sometimes it feels so very alone. You read the Psalms, and there's times where David is like, "God, where are you?" And yet it ends with, "I know that you're going to rescue me. I know you'll see me through." Or remember Paul in Second Corinthians? He says, "You know, man, we were we were afflicted in every every way, and he says we came to a point where we actually felt like we were disturbing of even life itself." Remember that in chapter one. Feel completely empty, completely alone. What we need to know is Jesus says, I am. I am here. You can take courage. You see, what Jesus has done is he has taken and put his men in a place where all earthly health and hope is gone. They can't trust in anything that they can do. He strips them down and he comes to them. Why does Jesus walk on water? Because he is going to meet them in the very Thing that they fear the most. Walking on the water was a staircase in which Jesus took the step to meet them what they feared the most and he does the same with us. We fear our cancer, bereavement, loneliness, financial problems, relational breakdown. we got fears about ourselves we're afraid of people. we want people to always think the best of us. We're afraid of failure. you ever I'm afraid of failure? Are you? God meets us in our fears, and he says, I am. It is I. Take courage. You know, even when you can't see him, he is right there. He's praying for you, and he says, take courage. It is I. You see... Jesus is putting them in a situation where they're going to learn how to live when they can't see him anymore. That's soon to happen. By the way, it's how we live today. We live by faith in Christ who is unseen but absolutely present. He's the I am. He is I am. He's in here. He's here. And he's in control. And he's not going to do us any wrong. Remember in Psalm 23, it says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I fear no evil, for you are with me. You're with me. Even though it's death that I'm facing all around, in front of me, beside me, problems inexplicable, pain unbearable, I will walk with you. You're with me. Remember in the book of Daniel, there's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and he kind of got on this little power trip where he wanted everybody to bow down to him and his little idol. And there's some boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're like, "No, we don't do that. We bow down to one, the one true God. You're not it. We won't do it. All right, you don't want to do, want to, want to play my game? All right, we'll find out. We'll tie you up, throw you in this big burning, blazing fire in this big huge furnace. Well, they made all these bricks probably for the statue that he built of himself. And remember, they threw them in here and. King, whoa, what's going on in there? He's looking. He's like, Let me ask a clarification question. Did we not tie up those three guys and throw them in there? And they're like, oh, yeah, King, you got it. Certainly we did just exactly. The same. Well, why is it that I see four of them walking around there? They're untied. They're unaffected by the fire. No harm's coming to them. And the fourth one, he looks like the son of a, the gods. Who is this? What's going on? You see, in the midst of their storm, I am It's with. See, Jesus, he doesn't tell us why. He doesn't tell us why he went into the storm. And we like to ask that question. He doesn't tell us why. He just says, all you need to know is that I am. I am here, and that's everything you need. And so when it comes to these big problems in our life, the storms, the storms that are affecting you and I right now, we ask why? He simply says, trust me. Is, is there a reason for why this had to happen? It is no accident. It is no accident. Why Why are you not going to tell me at this time? Why not just tell me now? He simply says, trust me, draw near. It is not for you to know. All you need to know is I am and I am with you. I love you. Just trust me. See, the greatest form of worship is that when you and I still praise God, we declare he's our rock, our refuge. We find our hope. We find joy in Christ, even when we don't have all the answers. We don't have it. doesn't all make sense. We just worship him because our faith in him is great. Well, look at this. Verse 28. Peter said to him, well, Lord, if It is you and in the Greek, this is a first class condition. Not like you need to know all that, but it really could be translated since he's not questioning, like you look like Jesus. But are you, Jesus? He knows. And so he says, if it is you, since it is you command me to come to you on the water. Since it's you, Jesus, since you are God, I ask, Lord, that you will command me. Now, this word command he, it's what, uh, he asks him to use the word that a king would tell his subject, where a king gives a command and the person responds. He says, command me to come to you. He recognizes that Jesus is king and he gets the lesson. He, he sees that Jesus is teaching them how to live by faith in him, even when they can't see him. And now that they can, Jesus. Peter says to Jesus, Tell me to come. Command me to come to you. And look at this. And verse 29. And he said, come. Peter said, command me to come to you on the water. Verse 28. Jesus says one word. Come. Come to me. And Peter got out of the boat. Can you imagine? I mean, he he takes one of his legs and he puts it on the outside of the boat. And he puts a little bit of weight down there and he stands on this water. And then he gets the other one, but he's still sitting on the side of the boat. And you can see all the fear in the eyes of the disciples. Whoa, what are you doing? But you saw faith in Peter. But the real faith is when he pushed off and he got up. And, he, and for the first time, a regular mortal human stood and began walking on the water. Whoa, it's tremendous! The power of Christ being lived out in this man's life to do what is impossible. And yet the Lord commanded because he was never going to do anything that the Lord had not commanded him to do. And so he is walking on the water. Verse 29. He got up out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. What tremendous faith. What an amazing power. Is there any limit to what Jesus could do in a human life? But verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. All of a sudden, though, he took his eyes off Jesus. And he all of a sudden saw the wind and the waves. Because this didn't just suddenly just turn to glass. There wasn't some sort of plank that he's walking on. All of a sudden, he starts to see the circumstances in which he is actually walking toward Jesus, in which he's obeying the Lord. And he sees that and he starts to sink. And that's what the text says. He's walking. He saw the wind. He became frightened and beginning to think he cried out one of the great prayers of the Bible. Three words. I'd strongly encourage you to memorize it. Lord, save me. It is great theology. It is a calling out to the lordship of God and placing yourself completely at his mercy. Lord, save me. Rescue me. And immediately, verse 31, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? In this moment, as he just starts sinking down, you see Jesus just whoosh, grab him by this little cloak, whoosh, lift him up. He's still got the winds and the waves all battering around. You can just see his face, eyes to eyes, locked on to Jesus. And Jesus rescues him. And he takes him back to the boat. Man, I'll tell you what. That must have been some kind of miracle for Peter. What caused him? What caused him to start sinking? Look at verse 31. You see, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Doubt is the key word there. The word doubt means to waver between, between two opinions. You see, he was wavering between, yes, Jesus could make me even walk on water. He's everything I need to, whoa, I'm... I'm in the midst of a storm and I'm walking on water. People don't do this. And he starts freaking out. He was wrestling between these two opinions. His faith in Christ weakened because he became overwhelmed in his circumstances. And he began to sink. You know what that's like? You know what that's like when you start getting overwhelmed by your circumstances? I do. I mean, like, how could this ever work? What's going on now? Oh, and what happens is you kind of get on this downward spiral and you're, you lose sight of Jesus and you get fixed on your circumstances and you start sinking. Well, let me ask you, does anybody know about failure in this room besides myself? I'm kind of feeling all by myself up here. Okay, let's think. Okay. Any of you ever snapped at a three-year-old? Okay. Anybody got failure there? Anybody uh, went to a barbecue place and ordered tofu? Anybody wore spandex in public? Did anybody, anybody got failure? Does any okay, just a few of you. Really? You wore spandex? Okay, we'll talk later. Okay. Do, do, what about, though, what about in your walk with the Lord? You know failure? Like, did you ever give up on prayer because it's just uh, inconvenient? Did you ever go, I'm not going to spend time in the Word. You know what, I've just got too much to do with my schedule. Did you ever you, you knew that the Lord would want you to share your faith with this particular person, and you're like, no way, and you moved, or you left them there. Or you knew that you should probably encourage this person, but you wouldn't move past your self-centeredness. Or you just flat out became unfaithful. Maybe even denied the Lord himself. You know spiritual failure? Well, guess who knows failure? Peter and all of God's people. And Peter learns this, that God can rescue the failures. Not only could God make you walk on water, he can rescue the failures. Then I take great hope in that, because I am a failure. I need the Lord, and he has got to rescue me And Lord, save me is a very good prayer wherever you might be. And so Peter knew Jesus in a way that the boys in the boat didn't. Not only did you see Jesus give him the power to walk on water, he saw that Jesus had the power to rescue sinking people. And so we find that Jesus is teaching this great lesson here. He's teaching these men, it's all about faith in me. Why? You have such little faith. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Look at verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. After this conversation in the midst of the storm, standing on the water, Jesus holding on to Peter, asking about your doubt, you wrestling between two opinions. He said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? They get back on the boat. Can you imagine the other disciples are just back? And there's Peter, man. He is just drenched. And then Jesus does another miracle. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. God can end our trial when he sees fit, the moment he wants to do it. All of a sudden, the trial is over when he intends it. How did he get in this trial in the first place? The storm. Jesus sent him into it because he was going to teach them some lessons about him and about them. And when he wants it over, it's over. You see, There's something that's most significant in this event, and it's found in verse 33. I'd highly encourage you to put some sort of mark by it or underline it because this is what they are to learn. When this miracle occurred, verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. You see, these men had served him. They'd been with him. They know a lot about him. Those are all great things. This is the first time it's recorded. They worshiped him. You see, the storms of life are meant to bring us to the worship of Christ. The storm that you are in. I can't explain all the reasons why you're in it, but I can tell you the end result in which God is seeking to bring about in your life, your life and my life. It is to bring us to a point of worship where we will honor Christ. We will confess with our mouth. We will believe in our heart. We will trust him and call him out our rock and our refuge. And we will praise him both in song and in word and with prayer. Because that is the end result of these kind of storms. See, they are now worshiping him. They know that he is God. And they are convinced he is all that they need. You see, Jesus took them to a point where he stripped them of everything that they thought they knew. And thought that they could do so that they would realize that with Jesus, he is all they need, even in the storms of life. And I want to just make a little mention here about worshiping Christ in public, but privately believing that he could never do anything in your life, in you or through you or for you. It's like singing great songs here, raising the banner of Jesus at church. But Monday through Saturday, Jesus he can't do anything through me. No, he wants us to learn the lesson, the lesson of these storms. You see, God doesn't just want us to hear about these things. He wants us to experience them firsthand to know the power of his presence. Remember in the book of Job how it ends? In, in Job 42, verse 5, it says, Job says this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I heard about you, but now I've experienced you. I know your power. And so God wants us to be engaged in his ministry, his work, to take him by faith. It may seem like walking on water. It may be to lead in a ministry, to work with our children, our youth, our college students, to lead a fellowship family, to lead a Bible study at work. we got guys that do that. To, to share your faith with your neighbor or a co-worker, to represent Christ in your school or at college. He wants you to learn to trust him and, and find that his power to experience it in life. But you got to get out of the boat. And he also wants you to know that even when you're in the storms and life is breaking down and your body is breaking down and you've got issues and your relationships are hurt and your heart is hurting and you're feeling like your life is just being torn apart. He wants you to know the power of his presence. Ego in me. I am. I am right with you. Take courage. Do not fear. I am with you. You see, it is the confidence in Christ that allows us to overcome our fears in life. And they got the lesson. Verse 33. Your trial, your storm. Verse 33 is the end to which he wants to bring you. Worshiping Christ. Well, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. Now, they were blown completely off course. They're down in Gennesaret. This is a fertile plain south of Capernaum. They were supposed to be in Tiberias on the other side of the sea. But obviously word about Jesus had been spreading. This is, by the way, Gentile country. This is also Herod's territory. Remember Herod from uh, earlier in chapter 14? Well, these people heard that Jesus was there. There's such a great need for him. And so they're bringing all who are sick in verse 36. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured just to touch the tassel. And that's what a, the garment of Jewish men who were obedient to God based on Deuteronomy. They'd have tassels to remind them of God and his faithfulness. They would touch that just that tassel because they knew that their faith in Christ could make them well. Friends. It is our confidence in Christ that allows us to overcome our fears in life. This is what God desires for us individually and as a church. You see, God directs us into the storm to accomplish his will and to develop our faith. That's what he's doing. And worship is the response that is caught up with God. And no matter what's happened, even when you've been hit in the place that you feel like you are the strongest, Even in your capacity to love, and now all of a sudden your world is torn apart. He wants to teach you that through me, all things are possible. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said, you know what? Take courage. Take courage. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. And so we find that in the storms of life, they're meant to bring us to the worship of Christ. Remember uh, Mary Beth? I told you about it a few minutes ago. I'd like to read just a small excerpt from her book when she was talking about her clinical depression. In that chapter, she said medication was not enough on its own to really transform me. What I found is that my depression actually became an opportunity to acknowledge to God that he was literally my only hope. In the darkest, loneliest times, in the middle of the night, I realized that Christ is truly all I have. I realized that everything else, everything is fleeting. If I put my security or peace of mind in my husband, children or home, I would only continue to wrestle with life and how to control it. I'd already seen how a home and possessions can burn. And I knew that no matter how precious a relationship with a loved one is, it can be lost in a moment of tragedy. But for us, he wants us to see Jesus for who he really is. He is the great I am. We can take courage. We can live in strength when we live by faith. So as we go from here into communion, I want this to be a time where we draw so ever close to Christ. Let us declare our confidence in him. And whatever he's asked you to do, whether it is just to engage a friend or your child or to go on a mission trip, whatever it is to forgive someone, let us see his power working in our midst. So we'll move from just hearing to knowing. Let's pray. Lord, what a tremendous passage in the scripture to learn that there are purposes in the storm and that we can make sense of it. Not that we know all the answers or all the Reasons why this has happened, but to know that you are in the midst of it with us. You love us. You're accomplishing your purposes in our world and our lives. And so, Father, keep us from the evil one of going on detours where we are deceived or will disobey or we just live in bitterness. But bring us to that sweetness of fellowship where that we're trusting and worshiping Jesus, for he is the sweetest name We know. And Lord, if there is someone here who has never put their faith in your son, Jesus, would they pray with me and say, Lord, I finally understand. Jesus is the son of God. He is God himself. He came for a purpose to rescue me from my sin and to live his life through me. And I turn from myself and my sin and I turn to Christ and believe in him today. Lord, would you increase our faith? We ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to now share in communion in just the same spirit of worship and reverence. I'm going to ask that each of you would just prepare your heart to talk with him. If there's any known sin in the camp, and you'll know, the Spirit will bring that to your mind, confess it. Now, you do not need to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church to partake in communion here, but you do need to know Christ and to know him personally. The Bible actually warns, don't treat this lightly. And if you don't know him, Do not partake in it. Now would be your time to put your trust in him if you don't know him. And for those of us who do, let this be a time of sweet communion with the I am. And we'll share in the elements together.